Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Christine Lefave Grace to the show. Christine is the managing editor for Plant Services Magazine and the author of the article that we discuss on the show titled Plant Services 2019 Workforce Survey, What Have You Done For Me Lately? If you'd like to read that article, I've dropped the link to it in the show notes, so definitely go check that out. And also check out Plant Services Magazine at plantservices.com. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and here's the interview with Christine Lefave Grace. Hey guys, we're back, and I'm here with Christine Lefave Grace, the managing editor of Plant Services Magazine. Christine, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Rob. How are you? I'm doing well, and I mean, we just had a little technology problem, so hopefully we can get this one recorded and in the books. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christine, you're also, so we mentioned, you know, you're the managing editor of Plant Services Magazine, as well as the host of the Manufacturing Tom- Tomorrow's Workforce podcast. Do you want to just give us a background on the Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm one of the hosts of Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce, which is a podcast that we at Putman Media uh, launched at the beginning of 2019. Um, We saw it as an opportunity to share some stories from, you know, on the ground from organizations and individuals that are really confronting challenges uh, pertaining to the workforce that are facing their manufacturing organizations today. Uh, We're all storytellers um, as editors, and we love the chance to be able to share stories from from people who are talking about, you know, some of the challenges, again, that, that their companies are facing and how they are dealing with these. So we've had the chance to talk to, uh, for example, a guy in Ohio who built his own training center in his plant because he didn't see talent being developed at the local level that was going to address his workforce needs. So he built a training center. He's bringing kids in, you know, as interns and apprentices. They go to school. They get credit. They learn these great skills. And he's filling his own manufacturing talent pipeline. Uh, we've talked to, I talked to a 26-year-old engineer at Georgia Pacific who's creating a mentor network um, for her facility for young engineers to connect them with people who are more senior in the field. So it's a great chance to share some stories and some best practices, um, what people have long learned along the way as far as what is going to address uh, manufacturing's talent needs. Yeah, and, th- and that's one thing that I've heard a lot over the years that I've worked in industry. I mean, I have never worked specifically in manufacturing, but in industry is that there's a talent gap. Is that what you're, you're hearing out there? And like, what are companies doing to address that talent gap? 
Absolutely. So one of the widely cited studies uh, that's out right now comes from Deloitte and the Manufacturing Institute. Their 2018 study on the U.S. manufacturing industry found that up to 2.4 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. could go unfilled by 2028 because of the skilled labor shortage. And that's at a potential economic impact of more than $2 trillion, $2.5 trillion by 2028. So that's a lot of money left on the table if you're not able to find people to fill these roles. Um, absolutely, that is a leading challenge for manufacturers. And my magazine, Plant Services, um, found something very similar in our annual workforce survey this year, where 81% of respondents rated finding skilled workers to fill open positions as a leading workforce challenge for their organization. Yeah, so that's like a that's a big concern. And now I guess before we get into the details of that, like can you tell me a little bit about yourself and then also tell everyone a little bit about Plant Services Magazine? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Plant Services Magazine is a magazine that serves the manufacturing industry, specializing in, in maintenance, reliability and operations. Um, we're smart solutions for today's manufacturing industry. Um, I joined Plant Services as managing editor in January 2015. I've been an editor and a writer at different trade magazines for most of my career. Um, personally, I graduated from Indiana University with a bachelor's in journalism. I've lived in the Chicago area for most of my life. Plant Services is based in Schaumburg, which is a suburb of Chicago. Um, when I joined Plant Services, Almost five years ago, I was new to covering the manufacturing industry, but previously I covered healthcare information technology for a magazine called Modern Healthcare. Uh, and there are a lot of really interesting overlaps I've found between healthcare and manufacturing, especially when it comes to this idea of advanced, adopting advanced technologies and using these new technologies and the data that they generate to make more proactive decisions you know, kind of the idea of predictive maintenance for people or for machines um, and the cultural challenges of adoption that go along with these, I find really, really fascinating. There are so many really interesting dynamics at play in manufacturing today. And for me, I love having the chance to dig in and research at plant services and write about and share other people's perspectives about how this dynamic industry is evolving. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, like I, I use often when I'm explaining reliability to people is I use our own health and I use our, like how how we die and how we get born and that type of thing. And I think there's a lot of correlations that we can draw. Now, you did mention the predictive analytics side in healthcare. Like, how's that adoption look like? And are they having the same struggles that we're having in industry? 100%. You look at surveys, you know, in, in healthcare, there's a struggle with technology adoption. There's a struggle culturally in terms of um, maybe you could say some of the more experienced physicians and healthcare professionals, sort of sort of the old guard, um, getting them to adopt electronic health record systems. You think about you go to the doctor today, what are they doing? They're on their computer. They're using an electronic health record system to pull up your data from their facility, from other hospitals where you've sought treatment, you know, going back across across several years, maybe even a decade or more. But 
it's a big challenge getting people to adjust to a new way of doing things, adapting new processes. Um, we really value, you know, relationships with our with our physicians and getting to know the the assets, whether it's a person or a machine that you're that you're dealing with over the years. But the best decisions that you're going to make have to be informed by data and getting people to embrace that idea, whether it's physicians or reliability technicians, it takes work. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the like what we're seeing, at least from what I've seen, is just the culture and the we've always done it this way kind of mentality that's holding us back. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. There are there are major overlaps there, and we know, especially, uh, you know, within within maintenance and reliability, one of the quickest ways to um, you see one of the quickest ways to reach obsolescence is to just say, "Well, we've always done it that way." You know, it just doesn't cut it right now. If you are not um, advancing and adopting new processes and uh, kind of new perspectives, not just the new technologies themselves, you're going to get left behind. The We always hear about the pace of change really is accelerating. And those that don't embrace new ways of thinking, um, new approaches, run the risk of being run out of business. Technology, as we hear time and again, is a tool. It's an enabler, but it's not the solution. It's not the be-all, end-all. And just purchasing new technologies, if it's a portable, you know, vibration monitor, or if it's a, an EAM system that promises all of these great analytics benefits, just buying it, just putting it in, that's not going to get you anywhere. It demands a, a change in approach, um, a change in attitude as far as, you know, we're not going to be the firefighters rushing in and saving the day. I, I heard that from from somebody at a, at a plant, a reliability manager at a plant up in Wisconsin, there's some pride among workers about being the guys who can come in and they can fix it when nobody else can. They've got the answer when something has broken down. They're the ones who are going to rush in and save the day and minimize the downtime. And what's really needed and what needs to be rewarded isn't necessarily you know, minimizing the downtime or saving the day when something has broken, it's preventing it in the first place. So not just getting to that point, but rewarding people, recognizing people for their efforts in preventing that downtime from happening in the first place, preventing the emergency from occurring. Yeah, that, I mean, that's obviously like what true reliability is. I think like what I always say is, you know, like there's this we if if you practice good reliability, you've sort of opened up this alternate universe where a failure would have happened. But because you did something, it doesn't happen now. Right. And it's very difficult for people to see that alternate universe that something would have broken. Yeah. Where it's like very easy for them to see like, oh, we did like almost like a NASCAR pit stop like we. We were able to change this thing out in two hours when usually it takes us eight hours. Like it's very easy and tangible for people to see that. And so I think that's one thing that reliability people as a whole we struggle with is is that alternate universe, the kind of the, the 
illogical, but the the like way they shoot that down is like, yeah, but do you really know that would have failed? And yeah. then, yeah. Um, and just like the tangibility, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why, and what's so interesting how things, you know, kind of work together and um, how we can use data and view data in new ways to even answer some of those questions, right? So when we think about, um, you know, digital twins, the idea of digital twins or predictive analytics tools that let us look at, well, when is an asset really likely to fail based on XYZ and looking at operating conditions, um, you know, and, and how that's going to affect uh, reliability of something. It's so critical, as we know, to put metrics behind things to be able to to show to plant technicians as well as upper management, well, yet it would have likely failed then. And this is how much an hour of downtime costs in our plant. One of the things that was so interesting, um, a key theme for me at the SMRP annual conference in Louisville last month was this emphasis on, you know, show me the money, basically. You You have to have that data especially when you're going to upper management and asking for investment when it comes to reliability initiatives, or when you're talking to people on the plant floor about why you want them to change what they're doing, why you want them to use this different technology or take this different approach to, to managing PMs or to PDM. You need to have the data behind it to help, to help tell the story. And some of these new technologies increasingly give us that capability. So the need expands, but also tech is evolving at a pace where we're seeing how it can answer those demands. The, the key phrase for me in what you said there was tell the story. And I think that that's the, that's the key piece. Like the data is the data and people can interpret data in the way that they, they sort of feel sure. like it. Yeah. But when you tell that story, and you evoke that emotion, like on this podcast, we've talked about it a few times, but it's speak towards your audience and think about who your audience is and what's in it for them. Right. So right. for the shop floor guy, when you're saying, hey, I want you to change the way you're doing this, mm-hmm. you got to think about his perspective. Like he may not care if the plant makes another $100,000 next year, but he may care if he gets to go home early on Friday. Right. Where the plant manager, the opposite might be true. So it's speak to that audience, tell the story and try to connect with people on more of an emotional level than just a data level. So, Christine, I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about an article that Plant Services just published, which was titled Plant Services 2019 Workforce Survey what have you done for me lately? Do you want to just give us a little introduction to the article? Like what was the genesis for it and what kind of were the findings? Yeah, absolutely. Plant Services started its manufacturing workforce survey back in 2015 to kind of take the pulse of our readers in the manufacturing industry today about the workforce challenges and opportunities that they're seeing in their organizations. It's such a familiar refrain that, you know, baby boomers are retiring. There aren't enough young people interested in manufacturing to take their place. Even in popular consumer media, you see all these stories about automation is really changing manufacturing. This digital revolution is coming. You better be ready for it. So Plant Services, we wanted to know what do things really look like from the people who are living this reality every day. 
uh, we launched our survey again four years ago. It asks questions about, for example, again, what are the biggest workforce-related challenges facing your organization? Is it finding talent? Is it a matter of keeping talented people once you've hired them? Um, is it tensions that can arise between generations or between workers of different backgrounds? Do you see friction between management and plant floor employees? How concerned are you about, about automation taking away some of your job responsibilities? And how do you feel about your job prospects going forward? We've conducted the survey a few times since. We've asked several of the same questions to kind of take a a longitudinal approach to looking at our survey results, and we've also added some questions along the way. Uh, so this year, as in um, as in the past, we had more than 200 respondents. They represented a wide range of roles, from maintenance technicians to senior management, and they encompassed functions from operations and maintenance to controls engineering, uh, data specialists. Uh, that being said, department manager and maintenance and reliability staff were the most represented roles. As far as demographics of respondents, a plurality identified as baby boomers, uh, born between 1946 and 1964. More than a third this year identified as Gen X, uh, born between 1965 and 1980, and 13% identified as millennials, born between 1981 and 2000. Um, I wrote the story, and the, uh, the headline what have you done for me lately? Uh, that comes from one of the biggest findings for me um, from the survey results, which was career development is what it is all about for survey respondents looking at their organizations. Uh, when we talk about what respondents think their organizations could be doing more of or a better job at, both to recruit and retain folks, career development is where it's at. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with I mean, obviously, I'm born in 1988. I'm a, I guess I'm a millennial as well. <laughs> um, but from my experience, like I, I think that you have to really take a personal role at your own career development. Hence, right. one of the reasons why I started this, this podcast. And because I, I don't think companies do it well, or if they do it well, that track that they're putting you on, mm -hmm. it's a really long-term track. Like mm -hmm. it may be a 20 or 30 year track. And it's linear too, right? That's, that's such the default approach is that it's linear that you, you know, maybe you start as a, as a maintenance, tech, maintenance technician and then the just assumed path is, okay, well, next it's maintenance supervisor and then it's maintenance manager and then you go up from there, which fails to take into account how interested especially younger workers are in exploring different paths and maybe making a lateral move or allowing themselves the opportunity to pursue a passion that they find along the way. When the dominant cultural attitude is you're going to take this track and you're going vertically, you know, from here, um, it just doesn't necessarily offer uh, kind of the flexibility or, or open-minded approach to career development that we find that younger workers are really interested in. Now, now with the, you know, what have you done with for me lately? 
Like, do you also see that from the company side when they're like, essentially when they're evaluating their workers in terms of what have the worker done for the company lately as well? To, excuse me, to some extent, yeah. The dominant theme uh, really is what are you doing from a worker's perspective? What are you doing that's going to encourage me to stay with this organization and develop my career here? Uh, workers know that the job market uh, you know, for them is strong and that manufacturers really have a need for skilled talent. They're aware that their skills are in demand, whether they're somebody who's been on the job for 30 years and they know these machines inside and out. They have you know, an institutional knowledge that can't easily be replaced or they're younger workers who are coming on with tech skills that are highly in demand. They know that their skills are in the demand and they know that they have opportunities elsewhere. So what are you doing to encourage me to stay at my role or to stay in my organization? Workers say that they're looking for career development opportunities. Manufacturers, the far and away top challenge um, that respondents said their organization is facing is finding skilled talent to fill positions that are open today. We're not even talking about five years down the line. Oh, you know, there's going to be another wave of retirements and we're going to need people then. That's going to be a headache for us down the line. It's finding workers to fill jobs that are open today. And what our respondents said was, you know, my organization could be doing a better job recruiting new people by telling them about the career development opportunities at the organization. Whether that's by telling high school students, hey, you know what? Um, you come on and join at this level in the company and look where you could go from here. Look at look at this person who joined the company five years ago. Look where she has advanced to by now. Or showing your workers who've been in their role who are mid-career, 10 or 15 years into the job. You know what? You may have gone along this path so far, but that doesn't mean you're locked into this. And if you want to explore you know, this avenue, if you want to get into being a, a reliability supervisor or explore data, data analytics further, we have opportunities for you to pursue that because we recognize your interest, your skill, your value to our company. Um, so career development, again, I, I go back to that, but wherever you are along your career path, um, our respondents say they want to see that their companies are invested in them. Now, do you does this change based on the demographics of the respondent? Like, are the boomers responding differently? Obviously, like they're later on in their career, but what are they valuing in terms of picking a company to join? Sure. You know, it's really interesting. And I have seen this before in a couple of other studies there. In some ways, boomers and millennials actually are more alike than boomers and Gen X or Gen X and millennials. <laughs> uh -oh. uh, both, <laughs> right? Right? Well, you know, it, it kind of make makes sense, you know, the the parents and the and the younger generation for as much friction as there can be between boomers and millennials, um, we see somewhat of an idealism actually. You know, for both generations, both generations want to we've seen make a difference. Uh, they want work to be meaningful in some way, maybe for millennials, even even more so starting out right now. But culture, company culture is a big deal to both groups. So when we looked at, when we asked the question of 
what might encourage you if you were to leave your company in the next two years what would be a contributing factor to that for millennials far and away it's dissatisfaction with the corporate culture that's going to be a top thing that's going to encourage them to leave even more so than maybe complaints about you know pay and benefits at their at their current at their current job so company culture is a top priority for them for millennials too that was an, a more important consideration than it was for gen x actually which is one reason that you know it's important for companies to consider how they are communicating how they're telling their story of, of what's important to them, to workers across the generations. You know, what is this company all about? Who, who are we serving? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we striving to be better, to deliver something better? That's a story that matters, especially to millennials who are going to be coming on and assuming, you know, the oldest millennials are, are almost 40. They're going to be assuming management positions increasingly. But it's also important to your people who've been on the job even for for 30 years. If there's a risk of burnout, how are you going to keep people on? Yeah, I agree. And and to me, I mean, this one this one resounds really like really deep with me is and it's something that I've looked for. Like, obviously, a lot of the listeners know, like I recently started a new position and I was interviewing at a bunch of positions over the last, I don't know, six months or so. And it's it's something where I always try to get to the root of what the culture is. Now, maybe I'm looking at it more from a reliability culture, maintenance culture, but I'm still trying to distill what it is because I know that if the culture is really reactive and we're not very successful at getting ahead on a reliability program, like I probably won't be very happy for very long. Sure. If you're always playing catch up, you know, or, or trying to solve um, problems that didn't have to occur. Yeah, that, of course, that gets frustrating. Of course, that can contribute to burnout. And then where's, you know, where's the pride in, in what the team and what the organization is doing? Absolutely. Now, is there like you, you mentioned kind of in the intro that you you talk to a few people and they're doing some kind of innovative or different things to re- attract talent, especially young talent. Do you have any more examples or like what are manufacturers doing to attract the young generation? Absolutely. Well, there's there's great opportunity. There's some great activities and outreach being done. There are huge opportunities to do more. Uh, getting involved in schools and in the community is is a top way that manufacturers can connect with their community uh, to you know build their own talent pipeline and frankly just to get increased public awareness about what the organization is doing. Again, it's an avenue for you to tell your story. If you are maybe you have a team of of people who are volunteering some time once or twice a month to be a mentor for a high school robotics club or you know to be a guest speaker at a local community college about your career path, about your organization. Uh, I've talked with, with several people about opportunities for manufacturers to get more engaged in schools. I, I had the chance to interview a woman who leads Illinois' um, first uh, 
junior Lego League uh, outreach program. She she's a mechanical engineer, and she also, in addition to that, you know, serves as a volunteer coordinator. And she says there's a, a misconception among manufacturers sometimes that you know, if I want to get involved with, say, a local robotics competition or something, that it's going to be a weekly time commitment for workers. And you just can't ask people of that. No, it doesn't have to be that. You can do a, be engaged in a one-off opportunity in your community. You can volunteer an hour a month. You can, you know, again, be a guest speaker once every few months. So it doesn't have to be this huge commitment of resources, either money or time to be able to, to put yourself out there a little bit more. Um, I spoke with uh, the CEO of, of Leading to Lean about his perspectives on what manufacturers could be doing more of. And he noted that they can take a, a cue from the military as well, actually, uh, from the U.S. military, because you're trying to, the military is trying to connect with a young audience as well. What are they doing? They're going out to schools. They're showcasing the awesome, cool, leading edge technology that you're going to get to work with, you know, as a member of the military. It's going out there, getting getting involved, showing what you're all about and connecting with people in that way. Uh, one of the other things that we hear is how important it is to connect with not only young people, but also their parents and guidance counselors. Um, I talked with a couple of millennial leaders from Emerson a few years ago about what Emerson does in Minnesota to help attract talent. They have a night um, at you know one of their facilities that's just for parents and guidance counselors because winning over young people is is one part of the equation. But if you don't have parents who are going to encourage their children to go into um, you know skilled trades or to manufacturing careers, or guidance counselors who are aware of the opportunities within manufacturing, that's that's a major hurdle. And a lot of times guidance counselors aren't aware of the fact that you, know, you can go into skilled trades, get a job at a manufacturing um, organization, be making $40,000, $60,000 off the bat, and then you've moved up in your career and you're making family-sustaining money within a few years and you're not graduating with $50,000 in debt, which is such a huge deal. So there are a lot of different opportunities to get out and tell your story. It just demands a little bit of deliberate effort and a little bit of outreach. <laughs> it always takes planning and proactive thought, right? <laughs> it does. But the most important thing is just to get started. I mean, with anything, right? Whether it's a reliability initiative or, you know, getting more involved in your community, it can seem like such this overwhelming thing to get started with. And you go back to, well, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? Just take that first step. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been I've been really listening to this podcast lately. It's called The One Thing. And what they always talk about is what's your leading domino? And the analogy they use is like it, when you stack dominoes in a row, the smallest domino can knock down one that's, I think it's 50% larger. And so if you go, if you take it to the, like, I think it's like 30 dominoes and you're at a structure that's the size of the Eiffel Tower. So it's like, they're talking about like building that vision out and then really distilling it down to 
what's the small thing that I can do today to get me on that journey to getting that end goal in five years, 10 years, or however long it's going to take. Yeah, that's so powerful. Again, you, you don't want to kind of devolve into uh, into cliches or, or, or truisms, but I mean, I, I'm a runner and I, I love that the proverb of the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? You're not, you're not going to get to where you want to be until you set, you know, step foot out the door. That's, that's absolutely true. Now, Christine, I wanted to ask you this question because, you know, like obviously the people I have on this show, typically they're either reliability engineers or they're vendors that support reliability engineers. Now, you kind of have more of a holistic view, at least from a manufacturing perspective. Like, what are some perceptions of manufacturers of reliability and reliability initiatives? Yeah, I think it's definitely changing. Uh, one of the questions that we have asked, not just in the workforce survey, but also in plant services um, predictive maintenance survey, is about changing roles. Um, and we see an increasing share of respondents who have reliability as part of their title versus just uh, maintenance. Um, our man, our editor in chief, Tom Wilk, tells the story of, of someone he interviewed about, you know, how did you get to be a, a reliability engineer versus a maintenance engineer? He said, well, you know, I went to bed, a maintenance engineer. I walked into the office the next day and I was a reliability engineer. Um, obviously, <laughs> right. Obviously it's, it's certainly not just a matter of a, uh, a title change, a change on a business card, but as these new technologies uh, come out and, and evolve, I think there's a greater appreciation for being able to do more proactive maintenance, um, do more predictive maintenance that supports reliability. So I think there's a growing appreciation in the marketplace for the role of reliability professionals in minimizing downtime, is certainly minimizing unplanned downtime, and the kind of evolution in approach um, again, from firefighting to managing assets more holistically, taking a holistic approach to asset management and not just management of machines, but managing your you know, entire system to ensure that things are um, working optimally and that that, that demands you know, not just use of advanced technologies, but cross-functional collaboration and communication, some of those basic building blocks that's really kind of kind of changing the game and I think affecting how reliable, the reliability uh, profession and those who engage in, um, in reliability work is changing. Now, do you think that that's a, like a global competitiveness type of perception where like they're understanding that they can't compete with their current practices or is that more of just they've learned more about reliability because there's more information out there? I think it can be both, you know, and obviously what you're doing is going to be more important than, than the semantics or what a specific, you know, what you're called, what a, what a specific um, title is. But I do think there is, again, a greater appreciation for now we've reached the point um, where we're able to manage the whole of the system um, more more proactively. And why not kind of 
evolve our, you know, our roles, our titles, our processes to go along with it. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a chicken that, and the egg type situation, but that's how I see things evolving as we, as we move toward a, an even greater kind of focus um, in the marketplace on reliability. Yeah, and I, I really hope those maintenance folks that wake up and become reliability people <laughs> overnight uh, get some education before they just go right. out there. Because I've definitely seen through my career is I've seen some some of people who are called reliability engineers that I would argue are more maintenance engineers. And that's it really shows in the, I guess, in the lack of results that you see out there and the just the poor reliability practices around that I've seen. Well, and honestly, too, one of the things that we look at, and we didn't ask a question about this in the uh, workforce survey this year, but think about, again, some of the things that millennials are, are interested in when they're, um, you know, going into the, into the workforce and looking at the types of roles that really engage them. Um, maintenance implies, you know, fix it once it's, once it's broken, um, I think for a, for a lot of people, reliability suggests more of an approach of you know proactive asset management, ensuring that it stays up and running. So when you're looking to attract people, showing how a role has evolved, how maybe this role that you're getting into, while you're encompassing kind of some of the same type of work, it's not going to be the same role that you're dad or your granddad had, you know, because we've evolved to the point where there are different tools and different approaches to show how we can do this thing better. Absolutely. Now, Christine, the last question I got for you, where do you see the future of manufacturing going, at least in North America in the next five to 10 years? Absolutely. Uh, well, based on all of the research that's out there, all of, all of the studies about how automation and technology is changing the industry, um, you know, I believe we are going to continue to see low-skilled and repetitive tasks being replaced um, by automated solutions, whether that's in the warehouse or, um, you know, the assembly the assembly floor. Um, at the same time, as we read time and again, that demands a greater need for higher skilled workers for even um, kind of higher cognitive abilities, not just maybe some programming or robotic skills, but a willingness to, uh, to innovate, to work together, to collaborate across functions, across departments, to tackle challenges that have faced the organization or the industry as a whole for years. Looking at the bottlenecks. Why do we accept these as, well, this is just part of the business or this is just how things work? Um, looking at, well, how can, we, how can we do this better using the technology, using the analytics tools that are available to us, whether that's addressing supply chain issues and, and greater transparency or accounting for, gosh, when you've got a fleet out on the road, ensuring that you have... Um, the right, cap the right tools out there to look at, okay, you know, we're going to be running into uh, storms along the way. And do we have 
backup supply chain solutions because there's a wildfire or there's, you know, there are tornadoes or how are we going to, how are we going to address these business challenges that were just maybe accepted? You accepted downtime or you accepted that a certain percentage of things, you know, we're, we're going to fail. Why does that have to be the case anymore? Um, I think technology um, helping to address those questions and coming at these questions from a um, from a different collaborative approach or perspective, that's going to be really powerful in involving the manufacturing industry going forward. I love it. I love it a lot. Now, Christine, do you have anything to plug? Like, obviously, people who are listening, they should go and check out Plant Services Magazine at plantservices.com. Obviously, they should also check out your podcast, Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce. Do you have anything else you want to plug? Well, yeah, and Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce, uh, that's a Putman Media podcast. So Plant Services is a Putman Media publication. Um, we have several sister publications, including you know, chemical processing, food processing. We cover a lot of different manufacturing verticals. Uh, so Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce is available on, um, on Podbean. We have our own YouTube channel, channel that you can find by looking up Manufacturing Tomorrow's Workforce on YouTube, um, as well as it's under the, the podcast section of Plant Services. And on plantservices.com, you will also find, again, results of the 2019 Workforce Survey, as well as results of our previous surveys and some industry perspectives on the survey results from uh, people across different industry verticals and roles. So thank you. Thank you, Rob, for the uh, opportunity to to plug those. No, absolutely. I, I I do have to say I check out plant services often, even sometimes just to check out uh, the Captain Unreliability articles. Oh, <laughs> Captain is fabulous, right? <laughs> from my friends at Reliability X. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Awesome. So Christine, you know, it was fun. This was a fun one. I, I really think that there was some good stuff in this one that people can take away, whether or not they, you know, if they're looking to recruit people or they're looking to get into industry, I think that there's there's a lot to, to kind of unpack here. It's just such a fascinating industry. The dynamics right now, it's a privilege to be able to, you know, to cover it and to help share some of these stories as you're doing as well. <laughs> no, I appreciate you joining us. And, and I, you know, like both of us, we got to go out and trudge through the snow. So right. um, yeah. we, we had about, what did we have? We had a, probably about three or four inches the other day of snow. So, and it's about minus 20 degrees Celsius here today. So, oh man. Oh wow. It's winter for sure. <laughs> yep. So for everyone still listening, I really appreciate you guys listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.